Now, whatever happened to Taliban 2.0? When the Islamic hardliners regained control of Afghanistan two years ago, there was a lot of talk about, yes, a conservative but a less punitive regime open to things like girls' education. That future was not to be. Indeed, the United Nations estimates 80% of girls and young women have been out of school since 2021. But is religion actually the highest priority for the Taliban? Professor Armin Sarkal is with the Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. He thinks ethnic nationalism is really driving the regime. I think the Taliban first will have to obtain legitimacy from the Afghan people and also they will have to really gain recognition from the international community before the world could really engage the Taliban in a fruitful and effective way. The fundamental demand of the international community, and for that matter, the Afghan people, is that the Taliban should create an inclusive government. In other words, the government which has the support of the cross-section of the mosaic population of Afghanistan. But Taliban has absolutely refused to do that. It is a very much an ethnocentric contrival group. Afghanistan is essentially a land of minorities. The ethnic Pashtuns form historically about 42% of the population. The rest of the country is populated by non-Pashtun groups. But even the Pashtuns themselves are divided into two major tribes, the Durrani tribe and the Ghazai tribe. And the Taliban belong to the Ghazai tribe. And this is actually the first time that actually this sort of tribe has come to power and monopolized power in the country. You've written that there is no mainstream Islamic leader, there's no Muslim majority government that accepts the Taliban's particular interpretation of Islam. So is it even possible now, given that they seem so particular, so unique, for anyone to nudge the Taliban, I was going to say towards a more pluralist system, but even to nudge them towards something less harsh? The Islam, the Taliban has been applying in Afghanistan is not practiced anywhere else in the Muslim world. And in fact, it has been rejected by most of the respected Islamic organizations. As long as they stick to this incredibly ultra-extremist, self-centered interpretation and application of Islam, it's going to be very difficult for them to gain recognition also from a number of Muslim countries. And I think that's where the problem of the Taliban really lies. They are too sectarian and too self-centered, and they've come up with a version of Islam, which is very unique, very much a feature of this particular group. What, for example, could major Islamic democracies like Indonesia and Malaysia do to put pressure on the Taliban? I mean, those are very functioning democracies. Is there anything that a coalition led by countries like that could do? Well, I think they could do a lot. They need to really put a lot of pressure on the Taliban regime in the country. And of course, the Qataris have been engaging the Taliban for a long time. And in fact, they enabled the Taliban to open an office in Doha in 2013. And of course, all the negotiations between the Taliban and the Americans have been taking place in Doha. And of course, it was on the basis of the Doha Agreement of February 2020 
that the Taliban were able to eventually seize power because once the Americans signed the peace agreement with the Taliban, then basically acknowledged the Taliban as their peace partners in a way over the government of Afghanistan, which was allied with the United States. And the Afghan government was not part of the process of this peacemaking with the Taliban at all. So I think in a way, the United States and its allies at the end decided that we were going to get out no matter what. And of course, that's what precisely the Biden administration did. And as a result of that, neither the Afghan government nor its security and armed forces were really at that stage to be able to stand on their own feet and be able to keep the Mm. Taliban at bay. How strong is the Taliban in reality? Because, for example, I read where they have issued a fatwa against forced marriage. But as you say in some of your reporting, forced marriage is is back and you've got 12 and 13-year-old girls being forced into marriage. How strong is the central authority there? Well, the central authority is quite strong because they've got one single leader, that's Sohanzada, which is sitting in Kandahar. He is the one that is issuing the fatwas. And the rest of them, despite the fact that there are really divisions among the Taliban themselves, essentially have been following his fatwas and his rulings. But that does not necessarily mean that what Sohanzada or the Amir of the Taliban says is acceptable across the Muslim world, or for that matter, in Afghanistan itself. So what is really basically happening, that Ahunzada issues fatwas, and the Taliban and their commanders and the foot soldiers, and of course the ministry, they basically implement that. Mm. And that is what has really kept up the unity among the Taliban so far. But at the same time, there are serious divisions. I want to go back to this point that you made about Pashtun nationalism. The Pashtuns make up about 40% of Afghanistan, and yet I think they control pretty much every government ministry. I believe there are maybe two Hazaras who are assistant ministers in fairly junior positions. How much of what is unfolding in Afghanistan now is about religion and how much of it is really about Pashtun nationalism? I think it is a great deal about Pashtun nationalism and ethnocentrism. That's what it's all about. I strongly feel that uh, Islam is used for a degree of uh, power grabbing and uh, political uh, legitimation. This is not something new. It has historically existed in Afghanistan that uh, different groups have come to power and they've used a different ideological disposition in order to legitimize their position, in order to impose their uh, rule over the country. But the Taliban stand in a class of their own. And the way they have interpreted and applied Islam, Afghanistan had never really experienced before, apart from the time that when the Taliban was in power in the first round, that is in the 1990s, until they were overthrown by the United States and also the anti-Taliban forces inside Afghanistan. And then, of course, this is the second time that they have come Mm. to power. And this time, they are not much different at all from the previous time when they were ruling uh, the, or most of the country, although we were told by American envoy who made peace with the Taliban that this is a new Taliban. Yeah, Taliban, Taliban 2.0, I think it was called. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Taliban 2.0, and, and they're going to be somewhat really different. They're going to be more nuanced. They're not going to make the mistakes of their past. But of course, 
since the Taliban has come to power. All those predictions or profile of the Taliban has been not true at all. Yeah, one thing I find really intriguing about uh, what you've written uh, for ASPE, the um, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, you point out that neighbouring Pakistan and Afghanistan have had long border disputes. But I do wonder, Amin, is there an attempt, rather than to solve these border disputes, to actually blur the border region even more, to try to create some sort of Pashtun nation, a unified Pashtun nation that straddles the current border between Afghanistan and Pakistan? The objective of the Pakistan military, and more specifically its powerful military intelligence, ISI, has all along been to blur the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and to transform Afghanistan in what they have called the strategic depth, that in the case of another war with India, they could really fall back on Afghanistan. That has been their main aim. And to, and to a large extent, they have now achieved that through this uh, Taliban proxy. And they are doing everything possible also to integrate Afghanistan politically, economically, and uh, commercially, as well as security-wise, with Pakistan. But the main problem is that there are something like 20 million Pashtuns in Afghanistan. Of course, there is no reliable statistics in the first place about Afghanistan. But there's some 20 million Pashtuns in Afghanistan, or perhaps a bit less, and there's something like about 40 million in Pakistan. If the Pakistani Pashtuns and the Afghan Pashtuns join forces, then they will be in a position to give rise to very radical Pashtun nationalism. Mm -hmm. And that would be the backlash of the sort of policies that Pakistan has pursued, because ultimately Pakistan does not really want a part of its territory to become part of a newly a state of Pashtunistan that is basically a territory south of the Hindu Kush ranges from Afghanistan and running right to the Indian Ocean or the border of Pakistan to the Indian Ocean. So I think there is a danger of a Pashtun nationalism rising and that could have serious implications for Pakistan as well as for Afghanistan. Professor Armin Sarkal, he's also with the University of Western Australia. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.